Hello, friends. Thanks for listening as we continue with the second hour of Open Line. Today's program is pre-recorded, so the phone lines are not open. But I hope you'll hear something today that will encourage your heart and expand your mind on this edition of Open Line with Dr. Michael Radelnik. From Jerusalem, it's Open Line with Michael Radelnik. Hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with me, Michael Radelnik. This is Moody Radio's Bible study across America. My name is Michael Radelnik. I'm the professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. Open Line is being pre-recorded today with a live studio audience. We're coming to you from the city of the great king, Jerusalem, if you can believe that. We've been here together, about 225 of us, and we have been going up and down the land of Israel the last few days in Jerusalem, and the Bible has been coming alive to us as we've been studying together, studying the Bible together on site. That's, it's just so exciting. We've loved it. Today, tour to, to the tour participants on the Moody Bible tour of Israel will be asking the questions. So don't call today, uh, but listen in, because we will get to the questions that you've been thinking about. I find that people always ask questions that are representative of what you're thinking of, and that's what this group of tour participants will be doing. And so don't worry, your questions will probably be asked, and if you don't hear your question asked and you'd like to write in, all you have to do is go to openlineradio.org, scroll down, you'll see a link that says, Ask Michael a Question, put it there, and it will be put in the mailbag for upcoming weeks. I hope you have your Bibles open. I hope you have a second cup of coffee because we're ready to talk about the Scriptures. Hi, this is Linda from Edina, Ohio. And Michael, you mentioned A1 historical and biblical sites in Israel. Can you please explain again what this means and then identify your favorite ones? Yeah, okay. Well, in terms of A sites... uh, Well, I I grade sites. I'm kind of annoying. Maybe it's because I'm a professor. But I grade sites. There are some sites that I call an A. That means it's absolutely where that event took place. And then there are B sites, which I say basically that's what happened. I can't think of a better place. That's probably where it happened, basically. And then C is, it's conjectured that it might have happened here. Mm, Doubtful. And then D is... Definitely not. And then, of course, there's, I call the F sites. Those are forget about it. <laughs> and, and so there are all these sites. I, there are some sites that I'm just so certain of. The Southern Steps, obviously, Josephus wrote about them. People questioned whether they existed when Israel conquered the, the area, uh, reunited Jerusalem. They created an excavation there and they uncovered those southern steps. And those are southern steps that, well, Jesus would have walked up those southern steps. There's a dispute as to where the beautiful gate is, where Peter and John healed the lame man. I think it was on those southern steps at the entrance to the temple. Some people think it's on the other side, but I think it's there because the eastern gate was only entered into by uh, priests. So what kind of beggar who's trying to make money is going to go to the place with a limited audience? Beggars are smarter than that. They go where there's a big crowd. Uh, But we're just not sure what they meant by the beautiful gates. So you have that place. Uh, I like going to Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And Peter finally identifies the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's an A site. I love going 
where we went today uh, to the Valley of Elah because it's not only an A site where David fought Goliath, but also it's totally untouched. It's just a field, a valley between the mountains, exactly as described in 1 Samuel 17. It's just right there, and they haven't put up a national park. They, there's no entrance. You pull over on the side of the road, and you walk in there. The only thing, apparently, what Israeli tour guides say is they keep drump, uh, dumping rocks into the little riverbed so that American tourists can take them home. But I don't really believe that, but that's what they say. Uh, and so that's an A site. And one of my favorite places to go is a place where we went a couple days ago called Ein Harod. It's the, uh, the spring of Harod. And uh, the thing that, that, that's significant about that, that's where Gideon had his army reduced from 32,000 to 300. And it's the very place where it happened. And, and so I just love that when we see that. Uh, I love the Pool of Siloam. It's where Jesus sent the blind man. And that's exactly where it happened. I love walking through the Hezekiah's tunnel. Did anyone do that today? Yeah. Uh, Hezekiah's tunnel was dug by Hezekiah's workmen, and there was a sign there saying, here's where they met. And that's from a, oh, about 2,700 years ago. And so there are so many fantastic A-sites. The only caution I have about A-sites, you know, I often warn people about two syndromes that you get here in Israel. One syndrome is golden calf syndrome. And that is, uh, there are places that are not accurate, and they say this is the place because we've got to find some place that says it. Uh, Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa is one of those places. I think there's four of them. And we don't know where Simon the Tanner's house is. And so we start worshiping it like it's a golden calf. And we think it's matter, it matters that we know the exact place and it's not the right place. So I, I always caution people about uh, golden calf syndrome. The other syndrome is, I call it, and it's probably not a, ver a word you know, Nehushta syndrome. And uh, what that's about is that Hezekiah took the serpent that Moses lifted in the wilderness, remember the brazen serpent? And Hezekiah destroyed it because people were worshiping it instead of recognizing it as, meaning, as pointing to faith in God. And because they were worshiping it, they called, he destroyed it and called it a bronze thing, Nehushta. And I think sometimes we go to those sites and we start worshiping the site, if it's an A site, instead of worshiping the one who walked there or the one who taught there or what it teaches us. And I don't think we should worship the sites. I think what we need to do is worship the God who is active at these sites. And so we have to be, be careful about the Nehushta syndrome as well. Hi, Michael. I'm Kathy at, uh, from Rockford, Illinois. And my question is, in Revelation 24 and 5, who are those given authority to judge? And who are the dead who come to life after the thousand years? <sighs> we always want to know all these things, right? Okay. It says, I saw thrones and people seated on them and they were given authority to judge. I'm not sure who they are. I, I think that the ultimate judge is the Lord Jesus, and that's who people will stand before. Uh, but it may be, uh, maybe it's the body of Christ that there will be people who will function as judges as under the Lord Jesus. Just not sure about that. Uh, 
then it says, um, the verse you said, the, the dead who come to life, is that what you're talking about? Uh, I saw the great white throne judgment, uh, the one seated on it, earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Is that what you're talking about, those people? No, verse 5 you're looking at, okay. Uh, oh, this is before the thousand years, okay. Uh, in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Uh, it seems to me that the th those who come to life before the thousand years are the saints of the Old Testament. So you have the church resurrected before the tribulation at the rapture. Then at the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the Messianic kingdom, Daniel 12, and right here you've got the resurrection of the Old Testament believers. And then there will be people who actually die in the millennial kingdom because they enter the kingdom not glorified and they are believers and even non-believers and they will come to life at the end of the thousand years. Because everyone ultimately has to become immortal. And so those are the people who have died in the millennial kingdom who will be resurrected at that time. Okay? Yes. My name is Dwayne from Sherman, Texas. And my Sherman, Texas? Really? Sherman. Wow. Uh, I once spoke when I had hair way back <laughs> in, at Sherman Bible Church about 1984. That's where I go. Really? Wow. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yes. What role do you see the U.S. playing in the end times? None. Next question. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't see anything about the United States in prophecy. The only possibility is this. You see a revived Roman Empire sort of, or, or a continuation of the Roman Empire through Western culture in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And the United States was an extension of some of those Western powers. We often think of England, you know, that was the mother country for us uh, in the United States, uh, Spain for the Southwest, right? Uh, and so it does seem that the United States has some connection to those European countries that all want to revive the Roman Empire if anything, will be part of that confederacy of nations that kind of brings the, the a future Roman kind of empire together. But in terms of a distinctive United States, I don't see it. Okay. My name is Mike from mm -hmm. Everett, Washington. And uh, sir, in Mark 15, 34, Christ is quoted to have said, pardon the pronunciation, Eloia, Eloia, Lena, La Sabachthin, and then switches to English. And this he didn't, happens. He didn't switch to English. And then it happens in several places. Why the translation? Uh, because it was written in Greek, and sometimes the author would quote the Aramaic and then translate it into Greek, not to English. But the English translators keep the Aramaic transliteration, and then for accuracy, this is what he said, and this is what it means. That's it. Was just a literary style to say this. I was there. This is what he said. Okay, and but he's not translating it into Greek, into English. It's into into Greek. So okay, we're gonna take a break, and we're gonna come back 
And if that wasn't clear in terms of my answer, I'll try again. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you're listening to Open Line with Michael Radelnik, and we're going to be right back with more of your questions in just a moment. So stay with me. I'll be right back. Welcome back to this special Jerusalem edition of Open Line with a live audience. So glad you're listening in today. Grateful that you are an Open Line listener. Many of you are regular in joining me every week right here around the radio kitchen table for Moody Radio's Bible Study Across America. And now you can become a kitchen table partner by supporting Open Line each month, helping me to keep on giving people answers straight from Scripture. As a benefit to becoming a kitchen table partner, you'll receive a bi-weekly email from me called a Bible study moment, where I'll share Bible study tips or maybe answer a common Bible question, but mostly what I want to do is encourage you in your walk with the Lord. If you become a kitchen table partner for $30 a month, then you'll receive 50% off anything in the, Moody, in the uh, Moody Publishers catalog, including the Moody Bible Commentary, and I'd like for all of you to buy one of those. Okay, if you're listening, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just joking. But I, I just, I love that book, and I'm so grateful uh, that people are buying it and benefiting from it and growing in their in their walk. And so you get 50% off everything in the Moody Publishers catalog, including the Moody Bible Commentary. Uh, so call today if you'd like to become a kitchen table partner. The number is 888-644-7122, or just go to the openlineradio.org website and sign up to be a kitchen table partner today. And we're going to go to our next question right now. Hi, Michael. My name is Jan, and I'm from Auburndale, Florida. How long did it take to build the Hezekiah Tunnel, and how many men do you think it took, and how did they know to meet in the middle? Does the Bible tell us how many men? I don't... It does? I'd have to go find the passage. Uh, I think the, it's, uh, I don't know how many men did it off the top of my head. Uh, but the, the, que the real question is the engineering question. How is it that they met? Now, if you walk through the Hezekiah's Tunnel, you'll see that about 90% of it is one side, and they met 10% on the other side in, so it's 90-10. It wasn't like they met in the middle. I find that interesting. Uh, also, if you walk through the tunnel, you'll notice that sometimes you're bumping your head because it's so low. In other places, it's way, way high. And that doesn't make sense because you would think that they would have kept it the same height the whole way through, which leads me to believe that there was a crevice or a crease that they widened, uh, that it wasn't, it was like a crack in the mountain that they followed and as they followed that, which is why it winds and doesn't make a straight route, so they followed that, that path, and it led to, this, to the other side where they only went about 10% in, and they met it that way. I think that's, that's how it was done. It wasn't, I mean, it'd be a pretty good engineering feat as it is, but I think it was they were following a crease right there in the rock. Hi, my name is uh, Kathy Horn. I'm from Florida. Where in Florida? Apollo Beach. Is that? Tampa. Tampa. Gotcha. Tampa, yes. 
Okay. Okay. Now, if uh, there was a drought when Elijah challenged Baal, uh, where did he get the water from? Well, a drought doesn't mean that there was no, absolutely no water. It just meant that there was a lack of water. And so they, even during drought times, there's a little bit of rain. They save it up. Uh, the, the thing about him pouring the water over the sacrificial area is there was so little water that if, if God didn't respond and the drought wasn't broken, that was a waste of the precious water that they had. But it, the drought doesn't mean that there was absolutely no water, just very little water. Hi, Sharon from Gurney, Illinois. Uh, Luke states that Christ was born in Bethlehem and then was taken to Jerusalem as a child and then on to Nazareth. And Matthew states that he was born in Bethlehem and then the Magi came and then they were fled to Egypt and then it's recorded to um, then they went to Nazareth. Nazareth. The question is, how does this chronologically fit if the Magi visited two years after Christ's birth? The, the presumption there is that the Magi visited two years after Christ's birth, after Messiah's birth. And we're not really sure when they came. It was sometime after the birth, but not necessarily two years. I think Herod was wicked, and he just wanted to make sure that he didn't know when the child was born. He knew it was an infant, so he kind of just pushed back a couple of years. It may have been just a month or two after the birth of the Messiah when the Magi came. Uh, just A lot of people say it was two years later because Herod wants to kill all the children two years and younger, but that's just Herod being Herod. He's going to widen it and make because he doesn't know who the child is. He's going to widen it to cover to make sure he gets every child. Okay. Yes. Lois from Beach Park, Illinois. Is there a significance or coincidence or divine intent that events occur at similar sites? For example, Abraham sacrificing Isaac at Mount Moriah, where the temple was later located. Yeah, that one in particular, we know God is the one that decides that. Abraham brings Isaac to Mount Moriah, to the mountain that God leads him to. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, uh, it says that, uh, that when the, the temple will be built, you must go to the place the Lord your God chooses from all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling. So right in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the book of Deuteronomy, God, uh, Moses tells them God's going to pick the place. And then you go to 1 Chronicles 21, I think it is, uh, and God tells Abraham, uh, tells David that uh, he's supposed to go, it says, uh, the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna or Ornan, the Jebusite. Uh, that's First Chronicles twenty-one eighteen, and then he buys it at the Lord's direction. So that's the same place as Mount Moriah. So what happens is first God directs Abraham to Mount Moriah, then he tells the people through Moses he's going to pick the place, and then he tells David where to buy the place. And so it is all linked. God's the one that chose that place. Uh, other things happen at the same place or same general area. I'm not sure. 
I think there's the providential design of God. An example would be, it says that Joshua crossed into the land of Israel from what is today Jordan. He crossed in due east from Jericho. And there's a place that's the traditional site where the, the Jordan River parted. It's also the place where Elijah and Elisha, it's, and it says east of the, of the city of Jericho, Elijah and Elisha. And remember, Elijah, he parts the water, and they cross over. That's where he tosses the mantle onto Elisha. And so you have two situations where first Moses has his authority passed on to Joshua with a parting of the sea and a parting of the river. And this happens at the parting of the river. And then Elijah's authority, his, uh, his double portion there, goes on to Elisha, and it's, again, passed on. And then the Holy Spirit empowers the Lord Jesus. That's the place of the baptism of the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit empowers him, and now he enters into his public ministry as high priest over Israel and the world, and it happens in the same place. That's in the providence of God. I'm not sure why the scriptures don't specify it, but it is the same place. Three super important events happen at the same place. All right. This is Heather from Indiana. Okay. Okay. We have, uh, the other day, we went to the Western Wall, and I think many of us here, and maybe others who have seen things on TV or pictures of um, people praying at the wall, um, they wear very different things than we're used to. <laughs> they, they wear these little boxes, the men do, that stick you know, on their, on their foreheads. Head. They have these leather straps wrapped around their arms. Um, they have their heads covered. Could you help all of us understand why, what those are, and why they feel they need to wear those? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, the, many of the people, not all, but many of the people praying at the Western Wall are wearing uh, black suits and white shirts, and it's this, they have the same look. They all have the same tailor, apparently. But the, the, the reason for that is many uh, are from a very traditional Jewish perspective that when they came out of Eastern Europe, because they felt that God had really spoken to their leaders at that time, they kind of entrenched in that look, uh, sort of like the Amish who looked the same for generations and generations, so they dressed the same way. Now, the, the other thing that they're doing, you mentioned, they're called phylacteries. They're mentioned in the New Testament even. Remember, Jesus talks about people broadening their phylacteries. Uh, phylacteries are boxes that have scripture in it, particularly from Deuteronomy 6. And in Deuteronomy 6, it says that you shall bind these as a sign upon your head and upon your heart. And so the box is put on the head, and the, they, the, in that box there's scripture, and then there's another, there's another box that's uh, put on the arm just above the heart, and it says you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and so leather straps come down, and they make a sign of the Hebrew letter Shin, which is the first letter for the word Shaddai, which means Almighty, and that's on the hand. And every day, Jewish men in the morning, except on the Sabbath, pray in phylacteries, and they bind the Word of God to their lives. That's the point of it. They're being bound by the Word of God, uh, held by the Word of God. 
another thing that you may have noticed here in Israel, it's not just there, but it says you shall bind these as a sign on the doorposts of your house. And uh, there's something on all the doors here called a mezuzah. It means a doorpost, but it's a box that has scripture in it that says that, and people kiss it as they enter and they exit from a house or from a room. And it's that idea of taking... Now, I happen to think that God's intention, saying bind these on your head and upon your heart and upon your hand, he meant in your thoughts and in your emotions and in your actions, head, heart, hand. And when you go in or when you go out, that's the doorpost to remind you, take the word of God with you. So it wasn't to be interpreted literally with boxes and doorposts, but it's a great reminder. So even though it wasn't to necessarily be interpreted literally, it could be applied literally as a reminder. So in our home, for example, we have mezuzot on the doors so that we know that when we leave our house, we come in, we're taking the word of God with us, we're bringing it back. We're not believers inside the house and act like anything outside. We want the word of God to guide us everywhere. And so that's the point of the mezuzah. And I do know that there are Messianic Jews, people who believe in the Messiah Jesus, trust him for forgiveness of sin, and uh, they believe he died for them and rose again, and they put on the tefillin, the phylacteries, every day just as a reminder to bind the word of God into their lives. And so as long as they're trusting in the Lord Jesus for their salvation and sanctification, that's perfectly fine. It's just a reminder. We're going to be back with many more questions in just a moment, so don't go away. More questions straight ahead right here on Open Line with Michael Redelman. One of my favorite theology professors of all time was Charles Ryrie. He could take high-level biblical teaching and make it simple enough for me to understand. That's what he's done with his classic book, Balancing the Christian Life. Dr. Ryrie takes the truths of spiritual living and makes them easy to comprehend and practical to live out. You can request it today when you give a gift of any size to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. This is Michael Rydelnik reminding you that you're listening to a special pre-recorded edition of Open Line. So our phone lines are not open today, but please enjoy the rest of the program right here on Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Welcome back to this special edition, a Jerusalem edition of Open Line with a live studio audience. And we are pre-recorded, so don't call in today, but we're having a great time with the Moody Bible Institute Torah of Israel. And now back to questions. Good evening. I'm Pat from Naperville, Illinois. And uh, my question is concerning 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 29. Specifically, how would there be guilt and judgment on a person if the bread and wine are only symbolic in the Lord's Supper? Well, I would put it another way. If it, there's something mystical in taking the Lord's Supper, then it's kind of reducing it to magic. And what I mean by that is taking 
the Lord's Supper uh, that has a mystical presence of the Lord, and then you take it unworthily, and it has that effect on you. Like it's like, oh no, don't do this. This is a, a magic potion that you're drinking, and it's going to have a bad effect if you have a bad attitude. Mix, mixing the mystical presence of the Lord with the uh, with the with with the bad attitude, with the sinful attitude. So I, I think it can work either way. I don't think we want to go to that direction. So here's the issue. I don't think whether you take it as a mystical presence of the Lord or a memorial, it doesn't really apply. It doesn't that neither of those situations are what make uh, the discipline of the Lord. It says in First Corinthians eleven twenty seven and 29 here's what it says therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the lord it has not to do with what's present there or not present it has to do with what our attitude is it's what's present in my heart not what's present in the elements and it says in verse 29 uh, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself if you take this as just nothing, as insignificant, as not having any kind of real meaning, you're just kind of like, hey, I'm just going through the motions. That's no different than Israel offering a sacrifice without a heart of loving kindness and penitence before the Lord. And so I think that's all it's talking about. The problem, the discipline comes not because there's the mystical presence of the Lord or it's a memorial, but it's our heart, our unworthy attitude, uh, the, the, the sort of nonchalant attitude without taking it seriously. Because even if it's a memorial, it needs to be taken seriously. And so that's what I think the problem is. Hi, Dr. Rydelnik. It's Dave Cook from uh, Richmond, Illinois. Uh, since faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain, what did Jesus mean when he said, Oh, you of little faith? My mind's thought is thinking he, maybe he's referring to human faith as opposed to the faith from God. Well, that sounds nice. That's, I'll go with that. <laughs> uh, I think the faith the size of a mustard seed, it means that you don't need a whole lot of faith to accomplish great things. That too often we minimize, we, we think that we have a great deal of faith when it's really very little. And yet... God can use a little bit of faith. I can't muster a whole lot of faith, to be honest. I, uh, the, the person of faith I identify with the most is the, the man who said, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Because that's how I feel most of the time. Uh, that's a, I really want to believe, but I, I recognize my own inadequacy in that area. When Jesus says, O ye of little faith, he's talking about people who really little means virtually none. I think that's what he's saying. O ye of little faith. It's just a figure of speech to say, or an idiom to say, you don't, you're lacking faith. Uh, you don't even have a mustard seed. It's less than a mustard seed. And we need to have at least a mustard seed size. Dr. Rydelnik, my name is Judy, and I'm from Naperville, Illinois. From John chapter 21, verse 15, it says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What did Jesus mean by these? <laughs> he said, do you love me more than uh, 
John and Andrew does. Do you think he was doing that? I don't think so. Uh, many times we think that Jesus is trying to fo forge some sort of rivalry between the disciples when we read it that way. I don't think he would do that, mainly because I've read the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And I've learned in the Chronicles of Narnia that Aslan never discusses the spiritual lives of others with, with one disciple. He won't compare disciples. He says, I won't tell you their story. So since that's, I think, true to the Gospels, that Jesus only talks to us about our story, he would not be saying to Peter, do you love me more than John loves me? Do you love me more than Andrew loves me? I just can't see it. In the context, it appears that what Peter has done is he has gone back to fishing. He decided that I'm a pretty much a failure as a disciple, so I'm going to go back to f being a fisherman, which he wasn't that good at to start with. I mean, really, he's never able to catch fish, right? <laughs> he's always mending nets. And so, but he says, at least, you know, I can be a fisherman and not betray my Lord. And so in his guilt, he goes back to fishing. And when I think that when the Lord Jesus looks at him and he says, do you love me more than these? He's pointing at the net and the boat and all the accoutrements of fishing that Peter has just gone back to. And he says, don't you love me more than being a fisherman is what he's saying. Good evening. My name is Gail, and I'm from Groziel, Michigan. My question is, when reading the Old Testament, uh, many times you'll see the word Lord capitalized, and other times you'll see it in small case, Lord. What's the difference? All the letters capitalized, you mean? Yeah. Okay. And then there's a capital L with small case the rest of the way. Correct. Okay. That has to do with the Hebrew word. Uh, the Hebrew word that the scholars call tetragrammaton, that means four letters, the four-letter name, four name of God that is commonly pronounced, we think it's pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh, okay, that's, that's the idea, and Jewish people never wanted to say the name of God, they thought that was taking God's name in vain, and his name is Yahweh or Yahweh, and so what they did is they replaced, whenever they would see the name of God, they replaced it with the word Adonai, Lord. And that came down into English translation tradition so that many Bibles, when they translate Yahweh or Yahweh, they translate it with capital L and then small caps, O-R-D. And they're just, it's just that's the name of God. One of the few translations that really used Yahweh more than any other was the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which has now been revised and it's gone back to Lord. But the HCSB used to use the name Yahweh. Uh, and so that's what Lord with uh, capital L and then small caps represents. And then Lord with just L and then small letters, O-R-D, that's the Hebrew word Adonai or Adoni in some places. But it's the Hebrew word that just means Lord. And that's the accurate translation. Hey, you know what? We're going to take a break here because we need to do some stuff here on the radio. But we'll be right back with more of your questions. People, you're listening to a special edition of Open Line from Jerusalem with a live audience. It's really exciting. We're going to be back with more of their questions in just a moment. So don't go away. Stay with us right here on Open Line. 
Every weekend, OpenLine is here to help you understand God, the Bible, and the spiritual life. You ask the questions, and I try to answer straight from Scripture. When you become a Kitchen Table partner, you're not only keeping this program on the radio and internet, you're helping others to hear the truth, and you'll receive exclusive benefits like regular Bible study moments by me offering insight and encouragement. Become a Kitchen Table partner by calling 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Israel is constantly in the news, facing political, diplomatic, and even violent struggles. What does the future hold? Chosen People Ministries, one of our underwriters, and an organization reaching Jewish people with the good news all around the world, is offering a book, Israel's Glorious Future. Written by their past president, Harold Sevener, this book details God's faithfulness to his covenant promises made to Israel in the past and biblical prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the future. God's word reveals that despite current difficulties, Israel's future is certain and glorious. If you'd like a free copy of the book, Israel's Glorious Future, just go to openlineradio.org. That's our website, openlineradio.org. Scroll down to the link that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Israel's Glorious Future. Welcome back to the Jerusalem edition of Open Line. We've got a live studio audience, and they are asking the questions this week. It's been pre-recorded in Jerusalem. They're live now, but now you are getting to hear from the tour participants of the Moody Bible Institute Tour of the Land of Israel. And our next question. My name is Andy from North Aurora. In Matthew 27, 51 to 52, it says that at the moment Jesus gave up his spirit, that the earth shook, rocks split, and tombs broke open, that the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Who are these holy people? <laughs> well, one was named, uh, I don't know who they were, but when we look at this passage, uh, it doesn't, it's not real clear it does sound to some that Jesus shouted with a loud spirit and gave up his spirit, and suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now, I believe that's what happened at the crucifixion when he died. But verse 52, it's just talking about some other events that were unusual that weekend. And the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had gone to their rest, were raised, and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. The reason I think that that happened at the resurrection is because I don't think God would have kept them sealed in the tombs for three days. You know, so I think that the curtain tore, tore when, the, when the Lord Jesus died, but when he was resurrected, there was like a, this is the technical theological term, there was a super-duper burst of resurrection power. And some of the people who had died under the sort of Old Testament saints, just a few, maybe those who are, it's still sort of the Old Testament way of things operating uh, that took place before the birth of the church in Acts 2. And so some of those believers, because of that super duper burst of resurrection power, they came forward and they were resurrected. And I think, you know, I probably would have been annoyed personally 
when you think about it, because they had to die again. They were not raised to immortality. Uh, the Lord Jesus was the first one to be raised into immortal, so they probably had to die again like Lazarus, and then one day they'll be resurrected. So I'm like, oh, no, i got to go back. But anyway, the, the, uh, those were the, the saints. They were saints who had gone before, and they were resurrected. But it was, I don't know if it was Jeremiah, Isaiah, you know, David. I don't know who it was. So, yes. Hi, Michael. I'm Katrina from Chicago. After walking through the Holocaust Museum, a few of us were talking about the victims, specifically the children and others who spent their lives in concentration camps. If they were never exposed to the gospel or only exposed to evil so-called Christians, what is or what was their fate? Well, you know what? I don't ever there were many people there. We don't know what their faith was. We just have no way of knowing. And I don't want to generalize six million who perished plus another million or so that survived through those horrors by saying, I know what they each believed, because everyone's an individual. That's the first thing, so we can't generalize. Secondly, my mom was a follower of Jesus. She was hidden from the Nazis by Lutheran deaconesses, sort of Protestant nuns, for a number of years, and she became a follower of Jesus when she was 16 years old in 1938. And then in 1939, they sent her out of Germany to Poland. And she was in a sister deaconess house when the Nazis invaded Poland. That's when she was captured. She was put in a Ludge ghetto, and she ultimately was put in several concentration camps and spent most of her time in the Gross Rosen concentration complex. What she, her testimony to me was, what she said to me, is that people were more spiritually open in concentration camp than any other period of her life. People were asking her about her faith, asking her why she was trusting God. She suffered just as they did when she was released, when she was liberated by the Russians. She weighed under 70 pounds, and she was five foot seven and a, really a big-boned woman, and yet she was just skin and bones and couldn't walk any longer. So she suffered, but yet she always remained confident that she was in the center of God's will and he would take care of her, either bring her home or protect her and give her life. And people were taken by that. She shared her faith. Many people were responsive. Also, I know that there was a revival in Poland among the ultra, ultra Orthodox Jews, and many of them knew the Lord. In Hungary, there was such a revival that it's spoken of even, they didn't call it a revival, but in the Encyclopedia Judaica, it talks about how many Jewish people came to believe in Jesus before the Holocaust, and virtually all of them perished. So there were many followers of Jesus, not all, not the majority, but there were many followers of Jesus. I know this, that the Bible says that we have to believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. That's whether you're Jewish or if you're Gentile. That's what the scriptures say. The Bible says that this is true of people no matter that they suffer or they don't suffer. The Bible also says that, uh, that the judge of all the earth will do right, and he knows what's best. And so I am just going to trust him that he loves and cares for these people more than I do, and that he will accomplish his purposes. He is a loving and just God, and I can trust him. And and that's kind of where I leave it. Okay. Dr. Rydelnik, Dave from Illinois. 
This has been an amazing week, and I just praise God for the opportunity to be here in Israel. Um, can you tell us why we should pray for the people of Israel and how we should pray? I think we should pray for the people of Israel. We should pray, you know, pray for all people. But particularly the Bible says pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I think we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for peace so that the gospel will go forth. And so that's one of the reasons we pray. We pray for people to experience the peace here in Jerusalem. When we pray for that, we're not just praying for Jewish people. We're praying for all the people that live in this city. There are many, many people from all different backgrounds. And so we're praying for peace, that they would experience the Prince of Peace. Uh, we're praying that the gospel of peace would go forth and, and that they would hear it and believe. So those are some of the things that we're praying. I think we need to pray for Jewish people because they have... There's, there, there's a special burden that the Apostle Paul had for them. Uh, there's a special burden that the Lord Jesus had for his people. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Uh, Paul said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And so there seems to be a burden on the heart of the Lord Jesus for the faith of the Jewish people and a burden for that Paul has. It's the only verse that speaks ever in the Bible of praying for people who don't know Jesus. And he says, I, my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they might be saved. And so I would say, pray for the Jewish people. You know, we pray for so many people to come to know the Lord, and sometimes we forget that there's a special people that have a, a little burden on God, a special burden on God's heart and the heart of the Lord Jesus, and the heart of the apostle. And that should be our burden as well. So uh, we need to be praying for Jewish people, praying for uh, workers in the harvest to come and tell them about the Messiah, Jesus, and pray for them to have open hearts and be receptive. God will bring people to him. We need to remember to pray. We say, well, don't they have to believe? And we start trying to figure out sovereignty and free will. Well, the truth of it is, you pray, leave the results to God, okay? Hey, I can't believe that's the program for the week. Thanks for listening, everyone, especially this terrific audience with all their great questions. I'll be back in the States next week, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you by phone with your questions. As always, thanks to the Moody Radio folks, Chris Seagard, Ray Ashley, Heather Seagard, all of you who did so much to make this possible. Thanks to this great audience. Keep in touch with us by going to our website, openlineradio.org. It's got everything you need. If you're interested, you can find it there. Keep reading the Bible. We'll talk about it next week. Open Line with Michael Ray Dunlick is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.